0: Hey, uh, this morning, uh, I'm gonna share with you out of the book of Acts. And in doing so, we're gonna look uh, at chapter 20. Acts is written by a Gentile physician by the name of Luke, who's really more a historian by trade. And he writes about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And, and the birthing of the New Testament church really in a forensic fashion. And the book of Acts is constructed kind of in a unique way. The first one-third of the book of Acts really focuses on the life of, of the apostle Peter. Uh, this, the second portion, which is the remaining two-thirds of the book of Acts, really focuses on the life of the apostle Paul and tells us the story of his, his four missionary, his three missionary journeys, and, and bringing the gospel to the, the continent of Europe and all over Asia Minor and the different churches he plants, the different persecutions he faces, and, and, and filled in the book of Acts are all of these unique stories and, and perspectives that help us understand where we're from. And the reality is for the church at large, in order to have vision for where we're going, we have to understand what we have come from. And when I read the book of Acts, I don't know about you, but I am still convinced that we serve a Jesus who has power to save, heal, and deliver, we still have a Holy Spirit who functions as an advocate on our behalf, who fills us for the purpose of missions, signs, wonders, miracles. I'm just convinced that when you read the book of Acts, we are not just filled with a historical record of, of what was, but instead the character of God is revealed and he is the one who changes not. And so if he was that way in the book of Acts, he is that way today and he will forevermore be that way in our future. And so I love the book of Acts. In fact, it's my favorite book in the New Testament. And it shares with us just all of these incredible stories that are just filled with rich principles about how we ought to live life in light of what Christ has done on our behalf. And in Acts 20, starting in verse seven, the Bible shares a unique story. Many of you this morning will probably be unfamiliar with it, but I believe it's a timely word for our church and and for this region. Starting in verse seven of Acts 20, This is what the Bible says, the Bible says this, now on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Let me set the scene for you this morning, friend. Paul is on his third and final missionary journey. At the conclusion of this journey, Paul will face imprisonment in Jerusalem. And in many ways, he will live out the remainder of his years under constant persecution from the Roman government that will ultimately result in his martyrdom. But it's important for you to understand this distinguishing feature this morning. Missions wasn't an activity that Paul participated in. Mission was who he was. And when we reduce missions to a week-long adventure in a foreign country, we have missed out on the gravity of what it means to live life on mission for Christ. You are on mission in Snohomish. You are on mission in Seattle. You are on mission in your workplace and in your family. And in fact, from the moment you were born, you were stamped with a divine calling and gifting that is both irrevocable and without repentance. And this room is filled today with folks who are on mission in their world as much as Paul was on mission in his if somebody was joining the church a few weeks ago, and they asked me a question. They said, "Pastor, before we join, we just need to know how much of this church's budget goes to missions." And I said, "I'm glad you asked. It's actually 100 percent. Everything that we spend, every dollar that we invest, every improvement we make to the building, every event that we host, every service that we hold, it is with the express." purpose and idea in mind that we are on mission in the Northwest, that we are here to have his kingdom come and his will be done on earth, even as it's being done in heaven. See, when missions is an activity that you can check off your already busy life, you can do it and then feel good about your own spiritual state. But when mission is who you are, when it is the all encompassing factor that drives the spiritual compass of your life, then it's not something that we visit. It's not something that we check into and check out of. It is the mindset of every healthy spirit filled believer. No, I'm here on purpose with purpose to do something for God in whatever realm he places me in. You know, Paul's third missionary journey, it takes four years. And it's because of this reason transformation doesn't happen in a microwave. It stirs in a crock pot. Hear me friend trees don't grow in moments of passion. Christians don't develop overnight. Marriages don't flourish based on one good weekend. No, these things grow and get healthy as a result of being rooted, planted, and watered in the house of God, surrounded by the people of God, being transformed in the presence of God. Here's what I've found. It's a lot easier to have a passionate spiritual moment than it is to have consistent, spiritual movement. But listen, friend, if we want to see the region transformed, we must commit ourselves to a long faithfulness in the same direction. No, this task is not completed overnight. We must day by day put our hand to the plow and not look back. This task is not for the faint of heart. Hear me, this church is not the place that you get to come and retire your spirituality. We need folks from every generation, tribe, tongue, and nation who will plant roots in this house plant vineyards in this community, buy houses, raise families, start businesses, and contend for awakening until the Northwest is known for glory. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, look at all the growth of the church. Don't you feel successful? I said, I don't know. Ask me in 30 years. We are keeping our eyes on the prize until we can say with integrity that we raised our kids in revival. Friend, this is a multi-generational assignment. See, I got an eight-year-old a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I am not in this for me, I am in this for them. And isn't this the problem with so many of our political, religious, and social leaders today? They only think, plan, and legislate for what they want right now. And in doing so, they have become enslaved to the tyranny of the urgent. See, friends, spiritual maturity is the ability to discern between what you want now and what you need most. You know what I want right now? Warm weather, less hate mail, and a bigger building. You know what I need most? A sufficient grace, a devoted heart, and a sound mind. See, what we want now is comfort and luxury. What we need most is discipline and stability. What we want now is immediate and noticeable. What we need most is consistent and strategic. See, we live in a world of instant gratification and we've got an entire culture drowning in information, yet starving for revelation. We are at the most developed, fast-paced moment in the history of the world. But if we are not careful, we will allow culture's need for overnight results to poison the way that we view spiritual development. See, you must crucify the anxiety that wages war against your spiritual journey. You must crucify the temptation to compare your journey to someone else's. What God is building in your life and what God is building in this church is unique and it will take time, so buckle up. We are in this for the long haul together. Hear me today. There are no celebrities in Christendom. There are just folks who were faithful to the end and folks who weren't, you decide. See, near the end of Paul's third and final apostolic tour, he winds up in the city of Troas. And Troas was a port city in the northwest corner of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was home to around 50,000 people in the first century. and Troas, it was known as a place of great wealth, commerce, trade, technology, and it functioned as a gateway city to the rest of the known world. Do you know any cities like that today? On the final night of Paul's stay in Troas, he finds himself in the middle of a marathon sermon that lasts until midnight. So the next time that you think that I preach long, just know, I don't got nothing on Paul. The Bible says there was many lamps, And there was many people who was gathered in the upper room and they were hanging on every word, Paul said. He was sharing stories of the miracles he had seen, the persecution he had survived, the the cities that had been transformed, the families who were saved. I, I I can almost hear the people in that room asking the question, hey, Paul, tell us again about the earthquake in Philippi that saved your life. Tell us again about that riot in Ephesus when they left you for dead. Tell us again about them witches and warlocks that you confronted in the middle of the synagogue. And in the midst of it all, watch how the story unfolds. Verse nine, and in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. He was sinking into a deep sleep. In fact, he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and he was dead. Now I've fallen asleep in church before, but can you imagine dozing off and then waking up at the pearly gates? What happened? Why am I here? I was just sitting in church a second ago. Now I know I've preached my fair share of boring sermons, but this is the Apostle Paul. Now I know it's midnight and I know it's a work day and I know it's been a long week, but really Eutychus? You couldn't even stay awake for the Apostle Paul's final sermon in the city of Troas? And I can tell you this, there ain't nothing that ruins a good sermon more than a young person who dies in the middle of it. But all joking aside, here's my conviction. We are living in a eutychus season, meaning this. We got an entire generation of people falling asleep in their faith because the church hasn't given them a reason to stay awake. See, I want pursuit to be the reason you stay awake. I want this church to be the reason you rearrange your schedule so you don't have to miss it. I want this environment to be the reason you'll wake up early, sign up to volunteer, give in the offering, and invite your friends. I want this body of believers to be the reason you decide to hope again trust again, and dream again. And you know what testimonies I love the most? The testimonies that sound like this. I've never been this excited to go to church. I never quite know what's going to happen on a Sunday morning. This feels like the place I've been looking for my entire life. Now, I know we do things a little different. Somebody was concerned, I was wearing a suit today. They thought I might be attending a funeral after, no. <laughs> I know we are a little more energized than most and seems like just for fun, we like to take on seemingly impossible projects, but I operate with this conviction that if we want different results than we've ever had before, we've got to operate with different strategy than we've ever tried before. We ought to be unapologetic to be spirit-filled. We ought to be uncompromising in our allegiance to scripture. We ought to be unafraid to address cultural issues. We ought to be undignified in our worship of Jesus. And we ought to be unflinching in our love for people. And you know why I operate the way that I do? Because there's a thousand kids from all across this region, sitting on the windowsill of their faith, about to pass out from the boredom of religion, about to give up on following Jesus, about to slip into a Christless eternity, and I'm not giving up on them. Friend, the church still owes the city an encounter with a living God. Now, it's interesting, the word sleep that is used in verse nine is actually the Greek word hypnos. It's where we get the English word hypnotic. It isn't just used to denote a physical sleep. In scripture, it's also used to describe, watch, a spiritual apathy or lethargy. Watch the other places in scripture where sleep causes a people to miss out on a divine opportunity. How about Matthew 25? At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them was foolish and five was wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy, and fell asleep. And at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. But the foolish virgins who had no oil, who slept in the time of Christ's appearing, didn't have what it took to see him in his glory. See, here's my encouragement for you this morning. Don't wait for crisis to be the moment you decide to get serious. Don't wait for disaster to force you to be a spiritual person. Instead, make the decision today. I am waking up in my faith, I'm getting active in my spiritual disciplines, I am shaking off the apathy and lethargy that hangs on this region, and I am making the decision to come more fully alive than I have ever been before. It wasn't just Matthew 25, it was Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then he returned to his disciples and guess what? He found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He went away a second time and prayed. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left and he went away a third time and he prayed and, and when he returned, he said, are you still sleeping? For look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. I feel like God might be asking us something similar this morning. Is the church really still sleeping? Was the last three years not enough of a wake up call? If you only knew the hour in which you lived, you would watch and you would pray. See friend, we got the opportunity to ring the spiritual alarm clock across this region and declare it is time to wake up. No more spiritual slumber, no more spiritual apathy, no more dead churches, no more dry worship, no more lukewarm believers. It is time to arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of our God has risen upon you. everyone in this room has the experience of falling asleep during something they shouldn't. Maybe it's driving. Maybe it was during a business meeting. Oh, I'm certain we've all fallen asleep in church before. And you know what it's like. First, you're fighting it. Then you're considering it. And pretty soon you are sinking and eventually you are overcome. By the time you wake up, you don't know where you are, what year you're in or what transpired. while well, you were out. I'll never forget one of my first pastoral counseling appointments eight years ago when the church planted. Man, we was busy just trying to make this thing work, working two or three jobs. Oftentimes I'd get home from work. I'd be so tired. I'd fall asleep in my driveway before walking into the house. And Had somebody reach out, a young man, pastor, I gotta meet with you, it's gotta be tonight. And there's only so much coffee you can drink before it doesn't have an impact on your energy level anymore. I'm sitting there in the meeting, opening up about his drama and trauma. I'm sure it was a profound moment for him, but halfway through his story, I drifted off into another place. (laughs) about 10 minutes later, This young man said, Pastor, you still there? I woke up. I said, yes, I am. I was just praying for you. I wish that story was a joke. It's true. But I want you to notice the process here in verse 9. The Bible says Eutychus, he was sinking and then he was overcome. Eutychus didn't mean to fall asleep when he shouldn't have, but people rarely do. See, the next time that you feel yourself sinking into that state of spiritual apathy, I want you to do the opposite of what your flesh desires. See, friend, it is when you don't want to come to church that it is most important that you attend. It is when you don't want to worship that it is most important that you lift your hands and raise your voice. It is when you don't want to forgive. You don't want to pray. You don't want to tithe. You don't want to serve that it is most important that you discipline yourself into those routines. Because when you start feeling spiritually sleepy, if you close your eyes, you run the risk of never opening them again. See, spiritual apathy is like carbon monoxide. You don't realize how much damage it's doing until you wake up dead. When I start sinking, I need some friends to help lift me up. When I start sinking, I need some worship to help change my atmosphere. When I start sinking, I need a church that I belong to to grab me by the hand and refuse to let go until I'm fully awake. See, some Christians never make church or Christian community a priority. And then when they start to sink, guess what? They got no one in their corner to help lift them up. Somebody asked me last week, do I have to attend church to be a Christian? No, but friend, you don't have to ever go home to still be legally married, but it helps. (laughs) And see, in our family, we've just decided we're gonna make church a priority. If you know my kids, you'll know this to be true. There is a 0.0% chance any of my children will ever play professional sports. But there is a 100% chance that one day they will stand before a holy God. So we're going to have as much fun as we can six days a week, but come Sunday, we're going to be in church. Amen. See, our Antichrist culture, it does the opposite. It says things like this, oh, I understand if you just need to take a break. No, that's not really important to your life anyways. Oh, just remember, Jesus is all about love. Come on, there ain't no real moral standard that governs your life. Oh, really, God is just a euphemism for the energy of the universe because all paths lead to him. Listen, friend, I'm not taking advice from dead people on what it means to have abundant life. If you're sinking today, God can turn you around. But you gotta stop taking advice from devils on what it means to follow Jesus. Now watch verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, Eutychus, embracing him. And when he did... He declared to those who was watching above, do not trouble yourselves for he is alive. Paul rushes down three flights of stairs. He finds Eutychus laying dead on the ground. Paul embraces him, falling upon him, yells to the crowd watching from the window, do not be afraid, he is alive. Hear me today. The most basic definition for the word revival is simply this, new life coming back into something that was previously dead. See, this is what happens when a lost person gets saved. This is what happens when a dead church comes alive. This is what happens when a bound person gets free. It is new life transforming an old vessel. As I read this verse, I'm struck by this observation. Eutychus wasn't revived until Paul embraced what was dead. And this, in fact, becomes a major theme in the ministry of Paul all throughout his letters to the early church. Let me show you. Romans 6 and 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 3 and 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death so that if by any means I may experience the resurrection from the dead. Friend, you must embrace this reality today. Jesus did not come to improve your life Jesus was not sent to earth to assist you on your journey because you were already doing really good on your own. You were dead because of sin. You were dead because of bondage. You were dead because of oppression. And Jesus has come that you might have new life like you have never had it before. See, some people's pride won't allow them to admit their own deadness. But until you embrace the reality of your death, You can't embrace Christ's reality of new life. You gotta see what's happening here in the next verse. It's gotta be almost 1 a.m. at this point. Eutychus has fallen out of a window. He's died, raised from the dead. There's a huge commotion. They all run back upstairs and watch what happens in verse 11. They all went back upstairs and they shared in the Lord's Supper. And they ate together and watched the audacity of Paul. And Paul continues talking until dawn and then he leaves. (laughs) I love this. That the first thing that Paul does after this incredible commotion, a young man falling out of a third story window, hits the ground dead, Paul raises him from the dead. They all walk up back into the upper room, and the first thing Paul does is takes communion with the believers. What do we do in communion? We embrace the Lord's death until he returns. What do we do in communion? We recognize that his broken body and his spilled blood paid the price for me to cross over from death unto new life. Don't you understand what's happening here? The picture of Paul's reality, the brilliance of Christ's nature is shining through in Acts 20. Embracing your own death and in doing so, experiencing Christ's life. Christ didn't just die for you. He died with you. When he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised unto new life. And now you are seated in heavenly places just like him, because in him you live, in him you move, and in him you have your being. When I walked down in that region by our Seattle campus, when I spend time on the University of Washington, when I walk up and down frat row praying, I see tens of thousands of young men and young women who grew up in church, but they're far from God. They went to sleep in their faith. They gave in to spiritual apathy and slumber. And hear me, Fred. The chains of apathy are too small to be felt until they're too large to be broken. They went to sleep like Samson on Delilah's lap. They woke up with a shaved head and in bondage to those who they were meant to rule over. And the Northwest is filled with a generation of young men and young women who instead of getting served the real Jesus, got served dry, dead religion. And they went to sleep. And they hit the pavement and died. And nobody cares. And my prayer is that God would raise up men and women in this environment who the life of Christ is so contagious upon them that they don't run from darkness, they embrace it until the life of Christ causes everything around them to come into resurrection power. That is who we are. That is the type of church we are. And that is the type of God we serve. Fred stay standing I'm almost done. The lion of the tribe of Judah is still marching in the streets of the Northwest and at his roar the graves give up their dead And I'm telling you when I pray for Seattle, it is with this prophetic proclamation give up your dead give up your prodigal. Give up every single eutychus sitting in a window who's gone to sleep in their faith, and let it be for our inheritance and our reward a generation of sleepers who awakens to the hour in which they live. you're here this morning, you probably came out of a place that didn't look much like this. Sometimes you might leave here on Sunday mornings and part of you is encouraged and the other part of you is irritated and you don't know what to do with that. Well, that's the Spirit of God working in your life, friend. I want to encourage where you're at. I want to inspire where you're going. And I don't want you to live one more day below the level of your divine invitation. I walk with resurrection power, and so do you, because I serve a resurrected Jesus. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you, and it gives strength to your mortal body. I just believe by virtue of the pursuit planting in this region, it is causing people to come out of the sidelines of their faith coming out of the margins of their relationship with God they feel like they've been stuck in a spectator sport watching everybody's life move in the right direction and they feel like they've been left behind they've got injuries in their heart they've got woundedness in their spirit they've got dry dead religious baggage keeping them back but friend, no longer it is time for the region to wake up And let me end here, I love the description in Acts 20. And Paul was in an upper room and it was filled with burning lamps. And I'm here to tell you today that this is a room not unlike that room in Acts 20. And it is filled with burning lamps. And the apostle John says in the book of Revelation that it is the one whose eyes burn like fire, who around his head is a rainbow crown, who is worshiped by angels and elders, And he still walks amongst the burning lamps, which are the churches today. You serve a resurrected Jesus. And there is a demand on your life to come alive. Now let me in here. Now watch. You may not feel like being passionate about your faith in Christ but if you won't do it for you, do it for your children. If you won't do it for you, do it for your children's children. If you won't do it for you, Do it for the young man or the young woman who drags in late to our Seattle service, who is just one day away from giving up on God, one day away from overdosing in the streets, one day away from being abused again in a frat house, one day away from giving up on life. Do it for the eutychist who sits in the window, who is just begging and asking and believing that someone around them would come to life do it for them do it for them we are a light set on a hill for all men to see and may the lasting legacy of this church be that we cause dead men and dead women to come alive let me pray for you today (coughs) father now in the mighty name of jesus I pray that you would cause that apathy and that lethargy to come off of us. Listen, some of you parents in here this morning, you're believing for your kids who are far from God, and I am telling you today, Christ is the great hound of heaven and he is coming after them. I declare this week your children will have dreams of a man in white that they can't explain. I say this week God breaks up the hard heart and plants the seed of the gospel in a heart of flesh. I say this week blinders come off of their eyes like came off of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. I say breakthrough is coming because because you cannot hold back a resurrected King or a resurrected Church so I break it off today I break it off of your life too friend you will not live on the margins you will not live in the shadows you will not live under the yoke of heaviness shame or condemnation no You will be everything that God says that you are. I am giving you permission today. Come alive like you have never been before. And in doing so, let's see dead things be resurrected into new life. Father, we pray these things now in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, all God's people said, amen. Amen.